poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Hello there, my friend, and welcome to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson, and today's guest on CPG is the co-host of Dat Poker Podcast and one of the OG online nosebleed inbosses, Terrence Chan. After finding himself in the world of gambling as a middle schooler and then running his own bookmaking business in high school, you could say it was almost destiny that Terrence fell into the world of poker. And it just so happened that as he turned 21 and was bitten by the poker bug, he received an offer to move to Costa Rica and help build and grow a tiny online poker startup I'm sure none of you will remember. And at PokerStars, Terrence found himself smack dab in the middle of poker history because in 2003, Chris Moneymaker was one of a handful of PokerStars satellite winners who played in the WSOP main event. And while you probably know the ending to that story, what you most likely don't know is what went down at PokerStars HQ between the time they learned Moneymaker actually won and the few short months they had to prepare for the inevitable Moneymaker boom. Let's just say that if you could spell the word poker, there's a good chance Terrence was going to offer you a job. So in today's show with the indomitable Terrence Chan, you're going to hear stories about what it was like working with beloved legend of online poker, Isai Scheinberg, how Terrence felt about leaving poker stars so that he could find his limits in the world of professional poker, how he ultimately found himself locked in a cage battling against another human being in the world of MMA, and much, much more. So now, without any further ado, I bring to you one of the original online nosebleed in-bosses, and a human being who's shown time and time again he's willing to fail while daring greatly, the one and only Terrence Chan. Terrence, welcome to Chasing Poker Greatness, sir. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. Yeah, it's it's my pleasure. And um, as we do on this show, first question is, Tell us about your journey into cards, and this is—it's quite a doozy. Um, this is not the lightning round. <laughs> this is a, <laughs> typically quite a lengthy question. Yeah, no, um, it, it and it is like I mean, I—I I, I guess I was always playing cards when I was a kid. Um, My—I'm an only child, but my main influence in gambling as a kid was my older cousin, who's four years older than me, and so he would—he would just absolutely hustle me at at everything, like big two. I'm not—if you're familiar with it, um, he would just like start me with nickel stakes and then dime stakes. And he was just taking my allowance like the whole time. Um, so I was always into that. And then even when I was, I think 12 or 13 years old, the local um, provincial government started sports lotteries and the way those worked where you had to get a, a three game parlay to hit and, and it would be terrible juice, of course, but I was always gambling on those. Um, where, where, where'd you grow up at? In Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Gotcha. And so yeah. And, um, but I, but I mean, I don't know why, but I always liked gambling, which is weird. My parents aren't gamblers at all. My parents were, were the the people how, who would, how'd you get an action at 12 years old? I, it's, it's well, like I said, my husband, my cousin would hustle me and I, I don't know, I'm sure that that has something to do with it, but yeah. 
Like my parents were the kind of people who would go to Vegas and pretend not to know each other and bet like opposite sides of Baccarat to get comps. Like that's, that's, <laughs> that's how not gambling my parents are. Um, and the, but I just did this, like when I was 14, the, uh, the NBA moved in its three point line. And that's when I realized I could just bet the over on every game. Um, <laughs> you know, and I, it, so it's always been like a thing for me. I was running a sports book at 15, like in my school, um, you know, like people would bet on, People would just like I would just copy the lines from the newspaper and and bed and how, how did yeah. how, wait, 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 <laughs> how does that start up like how, how does such a you know a hustle start up I I don't know and it, I think it's so we in Canada like hockey pools are a thing right so you, you know the beginning of the season like you know everybody goes in order you draft your your team you know uh, and whoever gets the most points in their team in the ends so I think like it's it branched out of that like you know just. 13, 14, 15 year old boys really like sports. And, you know, so you convince them to gamble. I mean, young minds are easily addicted to things. Uh, I mean, I don't think, I don't look back and think intentionally like, oh yeah, I really, you know, really like, like got them. Like I was hooking them on cigarettes or something, but it was just like, it was such a natural thing. You know, I was, I knew enough math to sort of realize that if you took minus 110 on both sides, that you were probably going to win over time. Um, you know, as the sports government sports lottos had been doing the same thing to me, but yeah, um, that's how I started when I, and then when I went to university, that same cousin, um, he was like, do you want to go to the casino? And, uh, I said, sure. And I went down there and I, the first couple of times I played blackjack, which was fun for a little while, but then we went to a casino that had poker and it had four, eight limit hold'em. And this was 1998, I think. And there was just 10 people around a table and they were smoking cigarettes and they were just flinging chips into the pot. Right. So if, I mean, if you've ever seen a, a four, eight limit hold'em game, it's like eight handed to the flop. And to somebody who'd only seen table games and casino games, it just looked like chaos. It looks like madness, right? Like everybody's got chips in front of them. If you, even now you look, you look poker is so much less formal than table games. Like sometimes I go and play blackjack and, and, you know, you play like double deck blackjack and you're not allowed to hold the cards with two hands because you might be, you know, doing something sneaky or something like that. And the, the bets how have to go in the squares, but with poker, people are just like flinging stuff in the middle. The dealer's just, you know, pushing huge piles of chips. And I was like, Oh, this, this is the thing I want to play. So I sat down, obviously I lost. Um, but then I, I started going on the internet, which was new in those days. Um, and I started learning more about, about this game and uh, just learning more and more and asking questions on the internet every day and, and ordering books online. And uh, yeah. And then the rest is history. <laughs> When it came to like learning and progressing uh, as it relates to strategy, um, why was it so, such a natural transition to like, oh, I just need to find information about this game and kind of see what's going on and then eventually realize like, oh, there is an edge to be gained here. There's probably part of it in my personality. I mean, I bring up that story about the NBA and the three-point line to, to sort of illustrate that like, even when I was in seventh or eighth grade, I sort of had this realization. It's like, well, if they're moving the, the three-point line in, it probably means there's going to be more points. And so you hit that, you know, and even when we're playing big two, I would strategize. So I was like, every game has to be beatable in some way, right? Like if there's if there's some decision to be made, it, it has to be beatable, right? And when I played blackjack, um, you know, for those few sessions, I I played blackjack and I was like, you know, is this is this a skill game or is it a luck game? I mean, there's decisions. And then there was a, um, there, you know, back when video games were on CD-ROM, there was like, I went to the electronic store and there was like this bargain basement 
uh, blackjack game and I played it at home and it had, it, it showed the, the fundamentals of card counting. And it was like, oh, if there's small cards out of the deck, that means there's more tens and aces in there. You're more likely to get blackjack. Blackjack is your source of profit. If you're a player, you should bet more when small cards come out of the deck. And I was just like, whoa, right? Like, you know, just a simple concept like that. I was like, oh, there's something to this. And then when I, so I got on what was an internet forum then called rec.gambling.blackjack. Um, it, it's, if you were familiar with Usenet back in the day, and that led me to rec.gambling.poker. And then, so obviously if blackjack has, you know, about that much strategy, you know, poker has a lot more. And so people were writing these like, you know, little essays back then on, you know, how you should beat a 1020 limit hold'em or a stud game or something like that. No limit was not a, a thing back then, but that's, yeah, that's a, you know, I was just like, wow, this, this game is really deep. Yeah. I'm sh- going to show my age a little bit. Yeah. When I first started playing poker, I was 20 years old and it was five ten limit. And there, there was no no limit cash game. Like I remember the first time there was a no limit cash game, it was like five ten no limit, and it was just like, oh, okay, five ten limit to five ten no limit, no big deal. <laughs> same <laughs> same thing. How different deal. could it be? It's the same it's stakes, a, you know? Yeah, you you're gonna buy in for two hundred, right? Like, you know? Oh um, no, of course. Like yeah. it's like buy in for like half my bankroll, whatever that right. was at the time. That that's, but yeah, I mean, I remember the days of limit poker, and, and even. Uh, beyond the 510 going to play like 4080 at commerce you know that was like mm-hmm. a, a crazy game just so many chips and like the action like so unbelievably fast paced i mean like the chips are just flying back and forth um yes. that, that was a really fun game i assume it's still spread <laughs> at commerce i, I think I, so sure. i mean i think i i do have uh, i do have one friend who's like a pro in southern california and who still plays those limit games and i think they're still pretty good i'm sure they're not the way they were that we remember them Sure, uh, but I think they're still pretty good. Yeah, how, how did your parents feel about all of these entries into gambling? Did you ever get in trouble in school oh, yeah. for for bookmaking? I didn't. Um, no? Shockingly, <laughs> I don't think I, I think we kept it on the down low well enough. But I never got in trouble with school. My parents definitely weren't happy. I was as soon as I could drive. I was um, I was literally climbing out my bedroom window when I was supposed to go to sleep, and then driving to the casino and playing. Um, so they they were super unhappy um for a very long time um but then one one good thing happened um which was that you know from all this posting on the online poker sites a guy messaged me out of the blue with a job offer that guy's name was Isai Scheinberg uh, who I think probably everybody who listens to you knows who that is and he offered me a job and so when my parents found out about this they were much happier uh, uh, that I would that I sort of had turned my degenerate self into, you know, find some way to the, the, the sort of real world, even if it was, uh, you know, an internet poker startup, which is, you know, if you're talking about an internet poker startup in 2001, like you have no idea whether this is going to succeed or fail. It just, it, I mean, especially if you're, you're my parents and you're just a bunch of like, you know, Asian immigrants in their forties, like you don't know anything about this. But it didn't matter to me, you know, it was just like, oh, my God, I can get a real job that's in poker. Like, that's super fun and super exciting. And um, so I think they were much cooler about that. Um, And I did that job, you know, for about three years. And then I quit to play poker for a living again, which, again, they were much less happy about. But, um, you know, I was always very headstrong. That that little known poker startup, uh, pokerstars.com. The listener may or may not have heard uh, of such a such a platform. (laughs) Um, 
Did you have any plans on like going to college? What did your educational yeah. path look like? Yeah, I mean, again, I'm I'm the the child of Asian immigrants, and so all those stereotypes were sort of true that I I kind of was very much expected to get good grades in school and and go to university, which I did okay. I got I got kind of good enough grades to just barely sneak in university. Um, I kind of floated around for a really long time in university. I didn't know what I wanted to major in. I I took courses like I took all the, like the liberal arts courses at first, you know, philosophy and history and journalism and all this kind of stuff. And I would be in class and I would like have a David Sklansky book in in the lecture hall and be reading that instead of a lecture. I was just so into poker, um, as I think is common, you know, for for people of that age when they when they get into poker when they're in university. I was way more into it than I was um into any of my courses. And then so my advisor after a time, all those all this kind of screwing around, my advisor says, okay, it's time to pick a major, time to get serious. And I was, I said, okay, well maybe I'd like to do business. Um and then she looked at my my grades and said, you're not you're not good enough to get into business. Your, your grades aren't good enough. And you know, I I sort of said like, you know, in my mind, not out loud, but like sort of an F you. And that really solidified my desire to go into business. And I was like, and then I studied really hard the next semester. I played very little poker and I got into, I got accepted into the business school and I ended up uh, doing that um, almost out of spite. And yeah, then, yeah. but I would still, still uh, yeah. And so. It's amazing that do- button, how, how <laughs> there's that button that if somebody presses it, you're like, okay. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. I wasn't really that into business, but now I'm super into business. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I did three years of that. And that's when, you know, that's the time where, where Isai kind of offered me uh, an upgrade from kind of part-time work, which I was doing with them to, to full-time work. He wanted me to move to Costa Rica. PokerStars was was about to launch for, for real. Um, they'd been in beta for a long time. They had a very long beta period, um, which was, I think, part of their initial success. And, um, you know, and I said, well, I promised my parents I I would I would finish my university degree before I, I took my job because even though this is like an offer of a lifetime, like, would you like to move to Costa Rica, make a six figure salary? You're 20 years old. Would you like to do this and work in the industry that you love? And I'd be like, yeah, but I, I have, you know, this, this starting now that I say it, it kind of sounds like, like Matt Damon and rounders. Like I've made promises. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, I promised my parents and Issa said, okay, do one more semester then then come work for us. And then Isai paid for my last semester to do online and an online correspondence school wasn't really a thing, but we found some. And um, yeah, he, he just wanted me badly enough that he was willing to pay for it. And he said he was a real, so, so people don't really know a lot about Isai, but he was a real family oriented guy. And he very much had respect for the idea that I kind of wanted to honor my parents by doing that. And so that's why he was super willing to, um, to like pay for my studies. And it's like, yeah, okay. You know, you want to, you want to finish your degree. You should finish your degree. I'll, I'll, I'll pay for it. And I was like, well, that's so above and beyond. Cause you're already taking a chance on this kid with no experience. Like my only job to that point was like, I work in the mall and sold clothes and I worked at a gas station, right? Like he wants me to run a bunch of operations stuff at his online poker site. It was, it was such a leap of faith. Um, you know, well, when I think back on it. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I don't know how many like obsessive younger humans there would be in the poker space that were willing to like move to Costa Rica to, at that time. To work for yeah, the startup, like the, you know? that's the thing is is now 
you know, you look at the, the, the poker population and it's, you know, it's 25 to 35 and sometimes even younger, especially if you look at the, the lower stakes and those are the people who are in the poker. And, and if you look at a lot of the poker boom, the, the post moneymaker boom, it was people in their twenties. But, you know, when I started playing poker and probably you as well, by the sounds of it, like I would be the youngest person at the table by like 15 years. A lot of the time, you know, I would, I would show Almost up for that always, yeah. 10, 20 game. And like, there was nobody under 45. And so, yeah, like I, I, I to, to some extent, you're right. Somebody who is, you know, really keen about poker in those days was, was probably a little or harder to come by. Yeah. I, you know, going back to, to what you said about like, once people, you know, learned about poker, like young kids and they become obsessed with it. It was kind of like all they did, you know, I think, you know, that, that is me in a nutshell, like resonates with me completely. I was, I didn't do great in school and Mm. felt totally lost after high school. I hated school. Like I I could not, it was not my thing. I just did not Mm -hmm. like it. And then I, you know, I took the, the gap year. Um, it was just like working at Applebee's and one of my friends had gotten into poker and I played a lot of spades with him. And then it was like, oh, cool. I'm going to take, uh, advance, uh, hold them for, uh, what, what is it? Advance hold them for limit players or advanced limit hold them, yeah. whatever that Sklansky book was. Yep. Yep. Um, I bought that. I bought super system. I read it, you know, an hour before work, an hour after work and just dreamt of being a professional poker player. And it was like all I worked towards, um, yeah, just for like the first like four to six months while I was saving my bankroll before I moved to to Florida to actually pursue it. But I mean, it was like you find purpose. It was like, wow, yes. like I can do this thing. I, I can have freedom and autonomy. And it's like down to like how I perform. Like I'm in control of my own destiny. I don't have to like listen to somebody ordering me around and doing things I don't want to do. Like that was sort of the dream. And I think there's there's something to that sort of idea that it, that spoke speaks to people. I think especially in that era, you know, the sort of the pre-solver era or the pre-training site era of people who didn't really like school wasn't really quite for them. Like formal education didn't quite hit the right notes in the way that it does for some people. Um, that we sort of dove into poker because it was very much self-learning, right? Because you you had these books, and but these books were just kind of teaching you concepts. Right. There was no solver saying like, oh, on Jack seven, six, you're going to use this sizing. You know, you're going to use this sizing with these this range of hands and this sizing with this range of hands. And, you know, you're going to check back these flops and stuff like that. It was just sort of like ideas and you had to figure it out yourself. So it was very um, it was very autodidactic. Like you, you kind of had to figure it out. And, you know, because because there wasn't online poker, you couldn't play like 100,000 hands and see what worked. It, it's this very nebulous sort of learning. It's it, it was hard to do. It was hard to like track how good you were, but but that was part of the allure, I think, in in just getting good at the game. Um, yeah. Now that you say that, like it, it makes it's a hundred percent accurate in my case because I know how I am. I love solving problems, and even before I had played the first hand of live poker ever, like I just believed that I could figure it out and that I mm-hmm. could make it because I because like in school, you know, like in math class, for instance, right? You solve a problem, but you need to do it in the way that they teach it. And like that, I hated that. Like, I just wanted to figure it out on my own, kind of using like the tools that I had. And so like, I would lose points because like, I I wouldn't show my work in the way that they wanted me to show my work. And I always hated that. And like poker was a game where like, you could solve problems on your own and you are responsible for it. And and, I mean, yeah, that, that was just extremely exciting. 
And again, especially in those days where, you know, people played poorly and people like to make fun of pros from the 2000s because you didn't have to be that good. And that's true. But part of that is because we had to learn it all ourselves. So, of course, nobody's that good. But there were a lot of different styles um, to win. You know, like I would look at, you know, somebody would tell me this guy's been playing professionally for 10 years. And I would be like, well, he does a lot of really weird things. And it was, I mean, because when everybody's playing bad, there's, there's lots of different avenues to exploit. I mean, and in ways that, that, I mean, probably exist to some extent these days. I'm not super knowledgeable about poker theory, you know, here in 2021. They exist. Yeah. <laughs> We're 2022, I, I, by the way, Terrence. Oh, 20, excuse yeah, me. Yeah. We've changed years. Yeah. I mean, I'm getting real old. They're all, they're all blending together. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, <feel> it's, you. <laughs> I, I just, I, I, I do be, because there was no like, kind of established real way to play back then we were all making it up on the fly. And so that you did encounter lots. Of, and so I would learn from this, learn one thing from this guy and learn another thing from this guy and try to synthesize these things into like, okay, what does my game look like? Like, and um, yeah, I, again, I don't know to what extent that exists today, but uh, it was certainly fun at the time for me. I, and I know like, as you alluded to about uh, people looking down on the pros of like the early two thousands or saying like, ah, oh, it was just like, free money back then like there were a lot of people back then that didn't make it that couldn't figure it out yeah. that didn't want to do the work that busted out like because there was such a lack of education and tools to learn that it was on you and i mean it it wasn't just you sit down and printed money every single day like it was still a grind you were still learning mm. like there was still this level of frustration and I, i'm actually of the belief that like if you can't make it today with the knowledge like with the software, with the training, you couldn't have made it back then either. Because back then, mm -hmm. like you had to bootstrap it. Like you had to take responsibility and there was nobody to hold your hand and tell you what to do. Yeah, yeah. Poker's, I mean, unquestionably harder now, but there are also more, way more resources, right? Exactly. So like, you know, if you want to get good, you should. Like you're not, not everybody is, is going to be like the highest stakes crusher, obviously. But you, you sh if, if like playing poker for a living is really what you want to do, right now like you sh you should have the resources to do that if right you want to beat one two no limit live or mm -hmm. five five no limit live there's no excuse there is right. literally zero excuse right. for not being able to make that happen right right um but tell me about moving to costa rica uh that's got to ah. be a, a pretty pretty fun wild exciting experience yeah i mean it's you know people envision costa rica and it's like you know, beaches and girls and stuff like that. But I was, I was working pretty hard back then. I was 20 and I moved there with all my stuff. I mean, there, I didn't have a laptop computer. So I had literally like my tower computer in, in a suitcase, just wandering around, didn't speak Spanish, uh, you know, getting help from Isai and his son, Mark. Um, we did everything. I mean, we set up the office space and, you know, hired IT people to, to set everything up. And, and it was just a lot of work. Um, all the time. I mean, it was very startup, but again, I, I loved every second of it. I never was one of those people that says like, Oh God, like I'm working 65 hours a week. Like this is terrible. Like I don't, I don't want to do this. I don't have any time off. I'm exhausted and burnt out because when you're 20, you also don't really burn out also. Yeah. Um, we were just all excited about this, this business that we were building. Um, and what was, are some, some good memories about, you know, those start early startup days, hanging out with Isai and his son. Yeah, it was, um, I mean, just, just, I think when we hit 10,000 simultaneous players, like the whole office kind of burst into celebration. We had this, you know, we would set up a, I don't remember if it was a Sunday million, but it was Sunday, some Sunday tournaments 
that were sort of designed to get more players on the site. And when we had 10,000 people, like that was amazing. When obviously when Chris Moneymaker won the World Series, we were, it was really late at night, I remember. And we were just watching on a, on a big screen. And when Chris Moneymaker won the World Series and everybody could see the, the Poker Stars logo, uh, that was that was mind blowing. So you guys um, didn't have any advance notice or you had it you had to have advance notice. There's no way that you, you didn't, right? Because the ESPN of, of the oh, main oh, event. Oh, um, yeah, we were what was what were we watching? I think we were maybe just getting like I think we were just getting reporting. Hmm, I wish I could remember now, but I, I think we were just like hearing about it through uh, Dan Goldman, who worked there at the time, and he was just sort of like relaying the information to us, and we were just hell hanging out in the office. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then and then we would find out that this was going to be so. So I remember, yeah, the World Series was I think slightly earlier than it is now. I think it was probably like the the very end of June, and then we knew that it was going to air in I think August or September on ESPN. But so we so as soon as he won, like literally the next day, I'm like give me all the resumes, like give me every customer, like every resume that has ever applied for us. I'm going through this again. And it still wasn't enough. Like I just, I went on a hiring spree. We hired all these remote people. I went on the forums and I was like, do you play poker and want to work from us from your house? Like, <laughs> like send me a resume. And I, I hired so many people and it still wasn't enough. Um, Cause so you just, knew once you knew yeah. that once your, your guy yeah. had one, I mean, and plus like the last name moneymaker, I mean, just oh, per, so perfect. Oh, it, it, like it, you, you couldn't have scripted it better. Yeah. And, and you know, like, like that's the thing. It's like Isai and Mark, they did so many, they did so many great things that they, they also of course got extremely lucky with that. I think they put, there were, I believe there were 800 and, and 30 people in the main event this year and they put like 40 of them in. So, I mean, like their odds of one of them winning was, was not super high, like, but you know, just, you know, no, like the next, I think party put in like four people, you know, it was just like, they, <laughs> like, like they sort of were like, let's put people in the world series of poker. Like let's run as many satellites as possible. And remember that's a gamble because you're taking money out of, uh, out of your economy, right? Like if you're, if you're giving people $10,000 seats to the main event, like, it was hard to put money into online poker in those days. Like it's still kind of pain in the ass. Um, and so, you, you know, you're taking uh, $400,000 out of the economy to say like, Hey, maybe one of these guys can spin it up and maybe make a final table. Right. And uh, you know, so they, they took that chance, but they, they got lucky and you know, it was, but when that, when that happened, it was, it was absolutely insane. And the, you know, you mentioned the moneymaker thing also like what a cool villain in Sammy Farha. Right. Yeah, like, 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 how perfect was the 2003 World Series main event? You know, you just had all these like mix of grinders. Uh, you know, like Ivy made a run, and Umberto Brenes, and all these guys who would who would become big names. But like Sammy Farha, like if you had to cast a Hollywood actor to be like sort of the villain in a in a heroic poker movie, it would look a lot like Sammy. Yeah, it's it's really incredible, and I've had. Matt Savage on a number of times. And I believe he was, he ran that WSAP yeah. uh, that Moneymaker won. And he, he was telling me that like, you know, a year or two years before, like that wasn't a gig, like running the world series of poker was not prestigious. And there was a lot of thought that like this thing will come to an end. Like it's not going to be able to move forward um, in the future. And, and like, so really when you yeah, think about Binion's it, was, was going to go broke pretty much. Right. Yeah. And, and how, I mean, yeah. You, you think about it. It's like, Nobody knew that it was going to like blow up on ESPN like it did. I mean, I was 
I was in the midst of learning. I was I was at Applebee's, like reading my book before <laughs> my my session, my uh, my work sessions every day. Work sessions, my my shifts. Dear God, um, <laughs> that's what regular people call them, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, like I literally had to like search my mental bank of knowledge to find the right word. Um, but yeah, I was like about to go on my shift, and or I was on my shift. And just was watching it like in the bar area, you know, it's just like on the TV on replay, like over and over and over again. Um, And and yeah, it it just poker went absolutely insane after, after moneymaker. It it was such a good spot to have already been in poker and to already like understand a little bit of poker. Cause like we were talking about earlier to bring it back, you know, it was, it was something you kind of had to learn on your own. And so, you know, there wasn't, you can, go to a poker training site and, you know, you couldn't hire a coach and all this kind of stuff. I mean, even those things are, are kind of expensive. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're like a brand new player, but at least they're available, but like back then you had to already like play a little bit. So, so to, to be kind of decent enough at poker when the money maker boom hit, that was the part that, you know, if we we're talking about quote unquote free money, like that's the part that the free money happened was because you were already good at this thing that like people were, were just absolutely like they had no ideas what the world were or what they wanted to play. And, you know, that's, that's when you just were like the guys who would limp and then just call like 12 BB, your 12 BB raise. And then they check fold on the flop, you know, like, okay, thanks. <laughs> yeah. I, I've told this story before on Sun Cruise Casino, the first casino where I played poker, like we played overs one day. There were two out of 10 that wanted to play 510 and everybody else wanted to play 1020. Um, in a four hour cruise, there were two streets that were 1020. <laughs> like two streets, like not full hands. Like one of those two players was in every hand until the river, except for two rivers. Like, and yeah. that's just sort of how the games were back then. Yeah, it was a good um, spot to be for sure. It was. Uh, unfortunately, uh, if I would have gotten into poker like maybe 10 years before, but uh, again, I was probably 10 years old, so that probably wouldn't have worked either. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know. You'd have secondhand lung cancer by now. So, you know. It'd be yes. Worse. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, it's it's possible to happen anyway. My, my whole family smoked growing up. Um, oh, wow. It, I, like, working at Applebee's, again, going back to that in 2003 or 2002, like, there was smoking section, right? Like they weren't even, they weren't even, uh, smoking was still allowed in restaurants, which is just like insane. I've I've played, I've played, I played in the, the, the Bellagio when the, you could smoke at the Bellagio. Yeah. It's wild, (laughs) wild thinking back on it now. Um, but after Costa Rica, I mean, what led to you, you know, getting out of this six figure gig that you had in Costa Rica and pursuing poker? It's a, it's, it's a, it's a funny story. So Moneymaker wins the World Series and we're continuing to work and we're still really proud of this um, this thing that we've built, which is now just crazy big. Um, it's still number two after party and would, would be number two until UIGEA. But a, a, a number of friends came down to visit me in Costa Rica and they were, their, their whole thing was, you know, go to the beach, go to bars, meet girls, blah, 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 things that, that, that foreigners do in Costa Rica. And they, they came down partly because they knew I was working there. And so I gave them the tour of the office and, and they were all professional poker players. They were all pros who played on stars and party as well. Um, and they were all making a living, um, you know, all guys in their twenties. And 
so, you know, I gave them the tour at the office, you know, we met and had drinks and I took them to the bars and all this kind of stuff. And then they went to the beach and I went back to work and then they went home and I was jealous, obviously. Right. Like, you know, these are guys that I, I started playing poker with. We used to play in the same home game in the garage and, and, you know, um, you know, I was, I was going back to work, but they were, they were sort of living the dream. Um, and they were doing it on this, this thing that I was creating. And I was, like I said, I was very proud to be part of the poker stars team, but you know, they were going to tell me about their, their next stop. Like they were going to go to this place and this place and just play poker online or, um, or not even play poker and just grind it back home or, you know, and I wanted to, I wanted to, to play tournament poker too. You know, I, I would see like, Oh, there's a, there's a tournament in this place and a tournament in this place and this place. I mean, back then the, the tournament, the international poker scene was, was real. It was still very us dominant but it was starting to take off in, in other parts of the world like ultimate bet had their aruba thing um the ept wasn't quite a thing yet but there were tournaments in england i was like i want to travel the world playing poker and i thought about it for a really really long time and then um you know and i looked in in my poker tracker database and i i sort of like because you know every minute that i wasn't working for poker stars i was still playing you know i was at home playing poker i was grinding back then it was hundred dollar sit and goes on on party and I was like, you know what? Like I'm crushing hundred dollars sit and goes on party. Like I can, I can quit my job. And, and technically if I work more hours, I'll actually make more um, than I'm, than I'm making. And it was a really hard decision because like I said, like Isai put a lot of faith into like a young kid and I did enjoy working for the company. And it was a, a little bit scary, right? Because playing poker for a living, like just because I'm winning now, doesn't mean I will. What happens if I start running back? And of course I ran like ass as soon as I quit my job. Like that's just, part of the deal, but I, I did. And I, I submitted a resignation letter to Isai and, and he was, he was surprised, but not shocked. Um, and he wished me well, and it was great. And um, I continued to have a, a great relationship with him. And I, you know, and I, I did all the things that I wanted to do. I, I started playing online poker for a living and I started traveling and I, I would see friends and it was, it was the best time. Um, and I'm very happy that I did that. I'm, I'm, I'm extremely happy for, both of those experiences that, that I went to work for poker stars when I did. And also that I quit when I did, um, because it definitely allowed me to see so much of the world as, as someone in his mid, mid and late twenties that, um, I mean, I think everybody should travel if they have the means to do it. Um, so, cause it's just, it's just such a valuable experience for, for someone, for a young person. When you, when you think back to those, those days of leaving poker stars, and that excitement. Um, what, what's the first memory you can think of that reminds you of joy in those days? Um, I, I think the most joyous part, and I think this is true all the way up to now when I think about poker, is going to places, you know, wherever the, the poker tournament of the week is, whether it's the World Series or something, some other stop, and seeing friends. And to have that love, have, have the support and the camaraderie of, of friends in the poker world, um, it's corny, but it's so incredibly valuable as a person, you know, when you're, when you're sort of like battling at the table every day and it's just you and every decision is on you. You know, I went from, you know, being a part of this team and having this team identity of poker stars to just being on your own. Um, and so the friends that I made through the poker world, seeing them and getting to hang out with them, you know, on dinner breaks or, or whatever. Um, 
that's probably honestly like like the best part i mean it's better than any you know like huge score in a cash game which most of the which i can't even remember a lot of deep runs in the tournaments i mean i think just the community aspect of it was was tremendous for me and and i think back most fondly i'd say upon that and you know those are your people right like they they understand you in ways that like most other human beings walking the planet just don't understand poker players and there's something that's really special in that you can tell them you lost 15k this month and you know you tell you tell somebody you know you know somebody at the gym you lost 15k and they would look at you like you're you're crazy like do you have a problem (laughs) like like what's like they think you you know you're either you you know you're you're about to jump off a cliff or you have a gambling or like what's you can tell them that or or if they lost they had a huge losing month you can you can sort of commiserate with that and it and it is such a valuable support network and like you said these these shared experiences too like just these you know, I, I played a hand and this crazy wild thing happened, um, whether it's about what happened, you know, in the, in the hand industry wise or just wacky things that happen in casinos from time to time. <laughs> yeah, just good um, stories, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you have any specific memories of those days, like a specific fun time with friends? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how specific this is, but I would say I would say the 2007 and 2008 World Series of Poker um, was we you know when we shared a house and now that's the most common thing but i think it was it was actually pretty rare back then and, you know i had uh in my house we had matt harvelenko uh, gavin griffin um jared enkinman bill chen um and matt grape and theme all, all bunch of others and we we just had great times in the house and and people would win bracelets uh not me but other people would win bracelets and uh, no bitterness you know, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> basically it's it's awesome when like everybody in your house has a bracelet except for you yes it's great <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and just i i don't even know if this is like a one specific thing but i remember i mean each of them winning a bracelet was was great but then just we would have uh you know one party you know every year and um you know, just kind of schedule a day where like, okay, nobody's playing X tournament. Like we're going to have a party that day. We're just going to invite people. We're going to have it catered. It, it was, it was great. I mean, I don't, I don't know that it was that I have like a specific, I can't point to like this moment in time, but just the general experience again of, of being in that house with those people, I think during those couple of years was, was the best. I mean, I think of that fun. I think of that as fondly as I think, you know, when you watch TV and people nostalgize about their college years, I, I think, and, I, and that's something that neither you or I will do because we we didn't like school that much. Um, but those are the best times with, like, as you said, your people, right? Our people, like everybody who's in the world that you're friends with, that you like hanging out with, um, and you get to celebrate their successes and commiserate with their their failures. And yeah, I mean, I think that was the best. Yeah, this this is like really the driving force behind, you know, chasing poker greatness. The whole podcast is like meeting with my people and sharing yeah. their stories, right? Like, you know, um I don't know how similar that feels with you and your podcast, but you know, it's it's I always feel like just a jolt of energy when I click off the recording. Yeah, so you know, you talk about our our podcast which I do with Daniel Legrano and, and Adam Schwartz. Um it's 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 different. It definitely feels different. At times, we go down these these nostalgia trips, and I I mean I really enjoy you know having walked down this um, trip of memory lane with you. Um, but you know what's interesting about our podcast is is 
Daniel is still in the streets battling. I mean, he's playing the Poker Go Cup like this week. I don't, I don't know if it started yet, um, but sorry, as we record this, I don't know when you're putting this out, but he's, yeah, that's, I mean, he's still, you know, for as long as he's played poker, I guess 30 years now, still in there, still hasn't lost the love for a game, still kind of looking at his solvers and still, he told, he told us on last week's show, um, he's on the treadmill just watching other people's play for their tendencies. He's watching like old super high roller tournaments. Um, just, you know, he's looking for tells, he's looking for bet sizing patterns. And I was like, wow, to be, to be doing that, you know, he's not an old guy. He's in his mid forties, but he's also been playing poker since he was like a teenager and he could comfortably retire, you know, without ever playing a hand of poker again in his life. But he, he continues to do that and he continues to have that fire and that, and that's, that's admirable to me because as I don't really have that fire to be like the best of the best poker anymore. And, you know, when I first did um, get into it, I remember that feeling like we talked about earlier and I had it for, for many, many years, but I ended up sort of diverting along other paths. And the, the Daniel is still at like 30 years into this, into his poker career um, watching film just to see what, uh, what his opponents are up to is, is something. Yeah. It's, I mean, it just speaks to, as you said, you know, his love of the game and it's yeah. just a part of him that he loves and will probably be playing poker forever, you know, like Doyle played poker forever, yeah. right? Because he loved And it keeps him young, right? Like, I mean, it, it, the thing is like, you know, how people say like, how is Doyle uh, still playing and still playing well at, at eight, I don't remember, it is 84, 85, whatever he is. And it, like part of it is that poker is keeping him young, right? Like it's it's refreshing his brain. He's still working on it, and and Daniel too. I think um, it's it's this sort of this this pursuit of of still playing. It's this intellectual pursuit. I'm the kind of person like I I'll have that seven eight year itch. You know, I I I loved poker for and I loved it intensely for a super long time, and then I very intensely loved uh, mixed martial arts, and so like. I, I wasn't able to do the thing, but the, what's great about poker is, of course, that you you can do it forever, um, you know, and yeah, like he he continues to study and guys like Doyle. I mean, I don't know if Doyle's, you know, Doyle's obviously not working with solvers, but he's still playing like these 15 game mixes where like some new low wall variant will show up. Um, and that's that's incredibly impressive, too. And, and I think going back to Daniel, you know, like he like his challenge with Doug, I think says kind of a lot about him uh, like i know that he caught a lot of flack and was obviously going into it a, a big underdog like just yeah. by the nature of the how it was structured but and he, he knew, knew that, he was and he was, he was aware right yeah but he exactly. did it anyway and like it was just this challenge to push him push himself to see how far he could go in x amount of time and that to me is like quite admirable i mean that that is quite impressive knowing that you're a dog knowing that it's a uphill battle you're battling a specialist specifically at their game that you don't specialize in um and to just do it very publicly in that way i mean it took a lot of courage and a lot of guts and, and it was yeah yeah i don't think i can do that i mean i don't i don't have that ability in me to to sort of i i, and I wish i did to because I think it would have made me a better poker player. Because one of the things that if I regret something about my poker career, it's that I didn't sort of dive into more games. Um, I got, you know, I started off as 
a limit hold'em player. And then I became, like I said, a no limit sit and go player. And then I became a limit hold'em player again. And then I got so good at limit hold'em that, you know, I was making a lot of money at it, but it didn't allow, it didn't, I didn't allow myself to branch out and play. Right. Cause I was just like, this is my hourly at limit hold'em. It's really high. It's play, a trap. Yeah. It's a trap. Yeah. It's cause I, I could play these other games. I could play the eight game mix on stars and, and like get better at all of these games. Um, and I did opportunity a little, cost, you know, but I never, yeah, I never did. And, um, you know, I, I do wish I did more of that as sort of a, a, as a young person, because you, you know, you're chasing hourly, um, all the time. Cause you, you know, you know, and, and there's manifest in so many different ways too. It would be like, friends would call you to watch a movie and you'd be like, well, how much is this movie going to cost me? Because I'm in this really good game right now. And it's like, that's, if you go through life like that, that's just bad. I mean, it's, you know, on one hand, it's put me in a space where financially, like right now at my age, you know, I don't have to, to do too much for income, which is really nice. Um, but on the, on the other hand, it's, you know, like it would have yep. been nice to, if I, it would have been really fun to like be really good at 10 different games. Uh, maybe not some of those bracelets I talked about earlier, because they're a lot easier to win in, in the, well, most of those games. We got time, Terrence. Uh, we're not we're not ready to like be put out to pasture. Oh, like, I agree. Like and I have been today. playing more mixed games. It's, it's, it's funny thing is, is that now I have been playing more mixed games kind of online a little bit and, and studying those. And so, yeah, we'll see if uh, I, I, I make it out to the 2022 world series and, and take a few shots. Um, well, what else you got to do? You know, what, what else is going on? What else? Um, I got, I, I've, got, I've got parenting. Unfortunately, those are my primary responsibilities. This those week. dastardly kids sucking all the energy and time and attention it's a lot (laughs) the decision to enter a hand is fundamental to poker strategy too tight and they know what you have too loose and you're easy to run over free flop boot camp from chasing poker greatness is a comprehensive guide to locking down your pre-flop game and creating true range advantage. Eight days of guided training, over 60 optimal ranges, and access to a dedicated community of players that will push your pre-flop game from a place of weakness to your greatest strength. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com bootcamp. Available now. Before boot camp, I had been playing for maybe 15 years, somewhat seriously, always trying to get better, jumping from learning program to different learning programs and training site to training site, kind of feeling a little bit lost, not really knowing how to go about getting better. And pre-flop boot camp just felt like a great starting point, a way for me to to move from being a losing player to, to possibly a winning player. It felt like the right first step. Once you jumped in boot camp, what was your experience like? Well, first off, I realized that I'd been making a lot of mistakes prior to boot camp, kind of learning what rangers should look like and what hands should be played and what situations. You know, it was it was exciting because I I could see what other people had been doing to me, what kind of what I had been missing in my game. And then from there, just the whole camaraderie of everybody that's um, signed up, working together, trying to achieve that goal. You know, that that was fun. That's uh, pushing each other and really helping uh, one another, kind of feeling like you're a part of a team. It was uh, it was a great experience. I, I enjoyed the process and I learned a lot. What was your experience like playing cards post bootcamp? 
it's a totally different experience. You know, it put me in a position to be successful as opposed to always being behind the eight ball and, and playing catch up. Um, I really feel like it's it's the foundation of, of a solid poker game. And uh, since boot camp, I've been able to, to turn a profit and keep building on what I learned there. You know, being able to go back into the group and uh, re really work together even after boot camp was over, it's it's been awesome. What's your sample size of winning post boot camp? I think I have 70,000 hands played by now. You know, I'm a father and I have a job, so I'm not a, a professional player by any means. That's my sample size. Preflop Bootcamp is the flagship Chasing Poker Greatness training program. If you'd like to dramatically upgrade your preflop game, a new bootcamp launches on the last Saturday of every single month, and your link to join is chasingpokergreatness.com slash bootcamp. One more time, that's chasingpokergreatness.com slash bootcamp, all one word, or you can click through in the description box of this episode. Going back to, you know, your pursuit of poker, let's, let's hop back into your journey. You know, after you mm -hmm. came back from Costa Rica and were battling in the streets, having fun, um, you know, how was that experience like? And then what led you to mixed martial arts? It was, I mean, it was great. Um, I played, like I said, I, I played limit hold'em. I played at the highest stakes. Um, you know, I was, I played to a point where I couldn't get action anymore. Um, and that's probably what got me out of poker. Um, like I said, I never, and this is another reason why, you know, to anybody who's young and out there listening to this, who might be a poker pro, uh, that's why you make investments in other games, <laughs> uh, because I did sort of reach the top, but you, you just stopped getting action and, and okay, sure. If you reach the top of no limit, hold them, like you, you will have made so much money along the way that maybe it doesn't matter, but, um, and you can also you can always still play in other games, but limit hold them at the time. Like it was a much more condensed player pool. So if, if you if nobody was playing you, like you're just not making money. Um, and you're a heads up limit specialist. Too, a lot of and, yeah, a lot of it was heads up. And so you know that's that's really tough. I mean, people just if people just don't play you, you're, you're just not going to play. Like I can I can play ring, and I, I'm pretty good at it, but it's it's not what I prefer. And even then even then like full ring um online limit hold'em was was not um was not really like going a lot it, it, towards the like the late 2000s kind of post UIGA and especially post Black Friday um and then it wasn't I wasn't the going to be the one who wanted to go to California and grind it out in like you say the commerce or places like that because I mean part of why I wanted to play poker for a living was the lifestyle and to me driving to the commerce every day and living in Southern California to like grind it up amongst like the degenerates and of the, of the, the poker world, which just wasn't, it wasn't my thing at the time. Like if you, if you like doing that, then cool. Um, but that, that's not what I wanted to do. So that's kind of was part of my exit uh, of poker. And, uh, you know, talk about when we get into martial arts, a lot of that was, it was born of a drive to, to sort of be more active and, you know, recognizing how much I was sitting in a computer and I would, uh, you know, so I was like, okay, so I should sign up for this kickboxing class. I actually just, I met a dude in a bar in Costa Rica who taught a kickboxing class and I went to his kickboxing class and it was really fun. Um, 
around the same time, my cousin and, and one of my best friends was starting to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I got into that and that was really fun. And then as I got into Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you know, the UFC started, it, it had its own sort of moneymaker moment with the Ultimate Fighter uh, reality TV show. Yeah, Griffin and versus so, Bonner. What's that? Griffin versus Bonner. That's the, right. That's right. One. You know, um, uh, yeah, that, that was Griffin versus Bonner was the, the moneymaker moment of the UFC. And so I, I was, you know, I got into jujitsu and, and UFC had taken off. So I was like, oh, I wonder if I could, like, I, I wonder if my jujitsu is actually like good enough to win a fight. And then, you know, my kickboxing background too. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do one amateur fight. I have one amateur mixed martial arts fight. So I started taking the, the, the courses. And by then I'm, I had almost stopped playing poker. Like what I would, I, I wouldn't say that, but what I would say is I would go, I would go online, sit at a 200, 400 and 500,000 stars table. Nobody would play. And then about half an hour before uh, training started, I would sit out and go to training and I would come back and I would click on, click the sit in button and nobody would play. And then like that, that's basically like, you know, once in a while, somebody would sit down and play and they would like buy in for their, you know, they'd be like 200, 400 and they buy in for like $4,812. And so like, that's how you know that this was a guy who just had a bad day at 3060. Um, <laughs> just wanted to like get it back. Yeah. Um, and like, that's, that's all the action I would get. And so I was like, well, I mean, I'll just, I, I love doing martial arts, jujitsu, kickboxing. Like I loved it in the way that, that I loved poker in the very beginning. And I wanted to learn everything about it and, um, you know, do the exact same thing, buy books and buy DVDs and, uh, and just, you know, you, you can't physically train as much as you can with poker, but it was, it was all that I thought about when I wasn't playing poker. And how do parents that's feel how God. about <laughs> about mixed martial arts? Um, yeah, so if it, poker I guess was if there's a theme of this podcast is disappointing <laughs> my parents. Um, my dad didn't didn't care so much. My mom is an incredible worrier. I mean, she's the one who worried. I mean, I think every mom worries if you decide to quit your job and play poker for a living. But my mom is is a a world class worrier. I mean, she's like in the the top oh one percent of of worrying in, in boss. Yes. No yeah, she is an absolute and <laughs> worrying end boss. And so I would never tell her about a fight until after it happened. And I'd be like, this is what happened. I won. Um, and when, when she would find out I would have a fight through like random other means, like I would mention it to like a friend who had a friend who knew like my mom's friend, like, it, you know, it would come back around. And she, I heard you have a fight. Be careful. And I was like, I don't know. Be careful is the advice you want to give, <laughs> yeah. but sure. I know what you mean, mom. Um, yeah, they, but yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I don't, most moms aren't super excited about their kid being punched in the face, but, um, but I loved it. I mean, it was great. And leading up to that first amateur fight, I, I mean, mm -hmm. can you tell me about the experience just pre-fight, um, the day of, because that's gotta be a pretty intense experience. Yeah. So about, I still remember this 18 days before the fight. So I've been training, you know, a, a for, for six weeks just for this fight. Um, I was training with a more experienced opponent and he hit me with a body shot to the ribs that I have never to this day felt as much pain as I did. And I thought I broke every rib in my rib cage. Uh, you know, I went to the hospital that night and they told me like, you know, ribs had separated. And so I thought like, Oh, there's no way I was going to be able to fight. I, I remember not sneezing until like the, the day before the fight, because it was too painful to even do that. I would like roll out of bed sideways. When I drove a car, 
I, I, I couldn't drive a car. I would have other people drive me around because I couldn't turn around the shoulder check. I thought I was going to pull out of the fight. And then maybe six days before I, I did some practice and I was like, okay, I can, I can do some stuff. So suffice it to say, I wasn't super confident going into the fight. I, I sort of knew I had this, this big injury, this big problem. And I knew that if he kind of threw like one good shot to those ribs that, that I was going to double over and or, or lose. Yeah. Or God forbid that you have to sneeze in the middle of the fight. No. Yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> so um, I was a nervous wreck. Um, but one thing I learned and I, and I, I didn't know this at the time, but is that almost nobody goes into a fight hundred um, percent because there's so much, you know, if, if, if things are going well for you at the poker table, you can just abort and there will still be a game tomorrow, but fights are scheduled weeks in advance. Um, if you pull out, the promoter may not give you another fight because now you're unreliable. You know, the promoter's trying to get a certain number of fights on the show. You pull out a week before the fight. So a lot of the times people just, especially at the lower levels, accept a fight that they're not ready for. That's not ideal. That's really suboptimal. And, and that was me at that time. So I went out with just a game plan of I have to take this guy down and get on top of him and make sure I don't take damage, you know, focus his energy on getting back up or defending as opposed to, you know, being in this like sort of kickboxing range where he could just throw a strike and end the fight at any moment. So I'm going through all this in my head and my coach knows this too. He knows about my injury. And so all we're doing is, is takedowns. All we're doing is takedowns for this fight. Um, and so I, luckily I did, I, 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 I basically blitzed at him. I, I got a single leg and I got it to the floor and um, I took him down, took him down for the entire first round round ended. I took him down in the second round and um, I got to mount and I just punched until the ref pulled me off. And it was, <laughs> it was the biggest relief ever because I really thought like, like one, one good shot could, could end this. I mean, one good shot can always end it in a fight. But as compromised as I was, I don't think I would have taken a good body shot. Like if, if you knew about the injury. <laughs> yeah. You were especially vulnerable. Yes. You mentioned not being reliable for the promoter. And I have to imagine your life situation was quite different than most fighters who are entering the game where you don't really need the money, right? You're not really doing no. it for the Well, money. it's an amateur fight. Nobody gets money. Oh, yeah. was, okay. a- <laughs> so like, you know, you could have pulled out, right? And found another promoter, gotten another yeah. fight somewhere if you wanted. I, if you, I, and if I think you wanted to. Yeah, I mean, if I'm if I'm like advising, like like let's say you took me and you wiped my memory and I didn't know what happened in the fight, and you took like, you know, the 41-year-old me and ha- sat down and had a conversation with that guy, I'd be like, pull out of the fight, you'll get another one. Don't worry. But like that is the prudent thing to do because I just look at look at like you can't do anything right now (laughs) um don't do it but it is you just want to fight right like you've trained you've worked so hard like the the opportunity to do i mean i mean just just sort of imagine as a poker analogy you know to people who have say like they've never played their first world series of poker event right and they 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 study and they work so hard and they grind up their bankroll and then they win a satellite the night before and then what happens on the day of like oh some something happens like that you, you that you, you you shouldn't play maybe maybe you got you maybe like a little bit sick right like even like let's talk about the pre-covid era where where being sick didn't mean you you might necessarily kill somebody but like just just like that you're not you're not feeling it today those guys will still play right 
because you've just won a satellite. Like this is what you've built up for, for so long. And fighting is very much like that. Like you've been beat up for eight weeks, like guys who are bigger, stronger, better, more experienced than you have just kicked your ass for eight weeks. But your one glimmer, the one thing you've been holding on to is that I will get to perform on this day, right? Like I get to compete on this one day. And then to say like, no, I can't do it. Like that is, that is so hard. It's so hard to do, even if you're getting paid zero dollars for it. Cause you just, you just want that experience. And like I said, at the time, I thought it was going to be the only one I would, I would do. Like, I thought that I was like, okay, the, this is it. Like I will have scratched that itch, but, but as is often happened with itch scratching, <laughs> scratching the itch actually makes it worse. Mm-hmm. It's a really, it's actually a really bad metaphor because everybody knows if you scratch a mosquito bite, it just comes back more itchy. Yep. <laughs> and you know, you mentioned this like exuberance, right? This just like inner feeling of wanting to do something at all costs that like, you know, if somebody were to ask me in my current version of myself, if I go back in time to like 2003 and they're like, Hey, I'm going to like save up 5k and move to Florida to pursue playing poker professionally. Like you'd be like, what? No, don't like your chances is so minuscule. Right. But like when you're in it, I think sort of that, that just desire and want and passion is so powerful for you know, young adults and people that are entering something else that they just love that like, you, you just can't stop them from doing it. They, they will. Make it's it not happen. necessarily even wrong. You know, like I would say, yeah, exactly. I would go advise yeah. myself not to do that. And you would advise yourself not to do that. But the thing is when you're young, it, it is sort of the time to take risk. Right. So like, you know, if you're, listen, if you're 53 and you go broke, that's a, that's a fucking disaster, you know, because, because that's like the time where, you know, you're you're saving up for retirement. Like you should be set. If you're 23 and go broke, like not ideal. Okay. Nobody wants to go live with their parents when they're 23, but you're going to make it like, you're, you're going to be okay. As long as you didn't like get yourself into some, some debt that, uh, that you can't dig your way out of, you're going to be okay. Like in the poker world, like you can get staked, you can get back, you can, play the smaller stakes like you you will you can get a you job will be okay. and yeah you can get a job for a bankroll you know exactly you're you're gonna be okay you you don't want to go broke at 53 or 63 like that's a that's a real problem because you just don't have that earning potential and and so when you're talking about like should i take that risk at age 23 of of taking the 5k and making my poker bankroll and moving to florida to play a lot of times the, the correct answer is yes because you don't know what the upside is because the, it's so asymmetrical right yeah. What's the upside of somebody who's 60 and wants to play poker for a living and takes like half, takes like all their money to move to wherever and, and grind poker. Like what's the upside? This guy could be the greatest poker player of all time, but they may, maybe only has like 10, 15 years to like capitalize on. Right. Whereas, whereas if you're 23, like, Hey, maybe your earning potential really is that big, right? Like maybe, maybe you really do have this opportunity, you know, me working for poker stars, right? Like, so, so a lot of, um, in the, in the very beginning, when I worked for poker stars, like, you know, I, they, they didn't pay me like a lot right out of the gate, but you know, they did eventually they did it because they, they just didn't have a lot of the money at the beginning. Cause you know, they're a startup, but there's, there's so much risk. Like, you know, you, you tell somebody you're going to go work for this internet poker gambling site that doesn't actually have any customers yet. There, there's an excellent chance they never would have made it, but if they didn't make it like, so what? big deal. Like just go get a job somewhere else. But it's, it's, but it did, it ended up being this, this really big company that gave me great opportunities and treated me really well. And a lot of the people that I hired as 
literal $5 an hour because it's Costa Rica, customer support people. A lot of those people are now executives at, at PokerStars now. I mean, you know, that like, to, so, so it's very asymmetrical. When you're young, like taking those risks is actually very logical. I mean, you know, and, and when you're older, then, you know, naturally you're more conservative with your risk taking. Sorry, yeah. a bit of a tangent there. But, no, no, but no, I, just to say, like, I didn't, I didn't want this to come off as like, oh, like, you know, the, the old guys are always telling <laughs> me the young guys don't take risks because I don't, I don't think that's, that's true. Like, like a lot of young people should take risks within reason. And it's honestly, it's kind of intoxicating to taking those risks. Like I remember, so, so in the past couple of years, like, so as I've transitioned from full-time grinder to like uh, chasing poker greatness podcast and building courses and coaching and all that stuff, you know, my, my tactical Tuesday co-host, John, he had never played a hand of online poker before like mid 2020 during the pandemic. He was like live player transition to online poker and started at like 100 no limit because i was like yo you just started 200 no limit like you're rolled for well, i don't know why you started <laughs> and he's like uh i'm scared i'm scared so over the course of like six months you know he goes from like 100 no limit to 1k no limit so 510 online and he's like crushing he's just like crushing and like the energy that i would feel when we did our coaching sessions i mean it was like all all those memories kind of flood back on you and it's like man this is me, right? Like, holy shit. Like he, he just wants to see how far he can go. Like he, you know, and, and that tolerance for risk of like, yeah, like live at the bike, uh, you know, production in it. I'm going to go over there and like take a shot at the 50 hundred game just to like, see, you know, it, it, it was very refreshing. You know, it, it reminded me, it got me excited about poker again, just living, yeah. you know, vicariously through, um, my student who was going through the journey and, and yeah, I mean, those times are just ultra, ultra exciting. And I'm in agreement with you that like when you're young, you have few responsibilities, like you can take those risks and they're actually not as big of risks, I guess, as they feel in the moment when, as you said, it's asymmetrical, right? Like you blow through 10K, well, what you, you can save 10K up again um, if you need to. Totally. Yeah, I mean, this is borne out, like even just, finance portfolio theory, right? Like, you know, you go to a financial advisor, you first thing they ask you is how old you are, right? And like the the financial profile they build for a 22 year old is very different from when they build for a 52 year old, even if they have the same amount of money. Because the fact is that the 52 year old just doesn't have as much time to live. And so, you know, you, you're just going to keep that conservative and because you just want them to have like a good remainder of their life. Whereas, you know, the 22 year old can take a little more risk. Yeah. After going back to MMA. So you scratched your itch, which led to more itching. Yes. Um, t tell me, tell me about what happened after that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I knew immediately I wanted to do more. I was like, well, shit, if I can win a fight with these completely messed up ribs, like I want to see how far I can go. And, and I was, you know, I was 30, I think, or 31. I, I don't want to be under the impression that I was going to be a world champion, but I was just like, how, how good can I get? Like, how far can I go? So, um, uh, you know, had another amateur fight. Um, you know, this was funny. It was a mixture of MMA and poker because there was an, an APPT event in Korea. Um, and I had a lot of friends over in Asia from the time I played in Hong Kong. So, you know, a lot of them messaged me like, let's go play this tournament in Korea. Okay, sure. Never been to Korea. Like I said, if you get an opportunity to travel and you can afford it, you should, you should always go. Um, and 
you know, what I was search, I think what I was doing was I was searching for places to train on, on days off of poker. And I found like there was this amateur MMA competition that was also in Korea around the same time as the poker tournament. It was on the other side of the country, but South Korea is not that big of a country. And so I registered for it. I just, it was funny because if I had gone deep in the tournament, I wouldn't be able to play for it, but I was just like, when I register for it, I just was in the weight class. Um, I registered for my weight class. What was the structure? Is it like the old school UFCs? Like, (laughs) no, it was just like, it was just like a a thing. And and the website was only in Korean. So I had to use like whatever trans Google translate (laughs) or whatever. And I found one friend of a friend who spoke Korean who could help me out. They were just like, it, it was just uh it was just like 18 it was like a lot of fights it was like 20 fights you can still see it online and it there were a lot of the ones they were just like 75 kilograms such and such against such and such but some of them were like 61 kilograms such and such versus tba or such and such versus blank and so you could sign up to be one of those blanks if you're <laughs> yeah. an amateur. So I, that's what i did right I like be tba a, yeah exactly <laughs> and uh you know, like, you know, I did a quick search of that guy's name, but it's, it, it, I couldn't find anything, but it, it, it turns out like, I just wanted to make sure like the dude wasn't the next John Jones, <laughs> yeah. you know, basically. And I looked and it, and, and I couldn't find any indication of him like suplexing a dude through to the, th- through the earth's crust. Um, so I was like, okay, sure. I'm in. And so as, I, a, as a little tangent, going back to Stefan Bonner, he, he was, he did fight the, he did. the next John Jones. <laughs> I remember looking at that matchup, that matchup online. It, like John Jones didn't even have a profile picture. It was just like a silhouette in the background. Like, <laughs> yeah, that is a funny callback too. Because yeah, I, I very much remember that fight because like Bonner was the name value name, name person in that fight, and so it reminds you of like a lot of the the, the poker matches that are subsequently like a guy. Mm that everybody's heard of because he was on ESPN in like 2006 or something like that versus, a, you know, an internet pro and like the people who know, know the, the, the favorite is, but the people Absolutely. who don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah so, ahead. I mean, so I, 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 uh, I, I just took a train and I, I was actually a sponsored pro of, uh, of another startup at the time, a startup that didn't end up making it, but they, you know, they sent, you know, he, so the guy went over with his camera intent to like record this footage, you know, cause this is, this is, real good content i think is like a guy comes over for a poker tournament ends up getting in an mma fight um i win this fight but barely like i was exhausted and just like barely had anything left in the tank thank god it's amateur it's only three three minute rounds because if you watch the end of this video like i'm just on the floor like just bare i cannot get enough oxygen into my lungs um but i win the fight so now i'm two and oh as an amateur i go I leave Korea and I go back to Hong Kong, which I had an apartment in at the time. Um, and that's where I was living actually was, I was playing online poker and I was in Hong Kong and I went to um, just the gym where I was training. And one of the guys there, he, it, you know, he was uh, a promoter of a, of a new fight league called legend, which was an MMA promotion in Asia. They'd run seven events. They were going to run their first event in Hong Kong um and they need they wanted a a, they wanted a local guy and so this was three weeks after that that fight and they said do you want to fight in two weeks and i said holy shit like i don't know if i'm ready for a pro fight and um i go and look and i google the name of the other guy and he had fought in their promotion and 
he looked terrifying. He needs the living shit out of this. Sorry, I don't know how tolerant of swearing you are here. I've been it's, trying. It's not. the internet, you know. Yeah, yeah, We're yeah. Totally cool. With yeah, the, the, your gambling. Swearing. If your gambling podcast has a uh, has kids listening to it, the original um, title was "Chasing Fucking Poker Greatness." But yeah, there uh, we go. They, they didn't let me do that. No. Um, yeah, he need this guy into oblivion, um, and then he got tired and lost. And then, <laughs> but There's, like, that's the roadmap. Get need to oblivion. Yeah, well, you know, he dropped this guy like three times, real badly with knees, and then he just got tired and, and lost. And I, so I showed this to like my coach, and I was like, you know, my my coach at this point now is a is he's younger than me, but he's like a very old school Brazilian guy, and um, you know, he's like a anywhere any buddy anytime kind of guy and i said should i fight this guy like am i good enough to fight this guy he said yeah Terrence, you have a heart this guy no have a heart you have a heart you win you you fight this guy you win and like i'm gonna i'm gonna win on heart <laughs> like this is this is what we got like i came to you for strategy like i came to you like the way that a poker player would right like uh-huh. like uh the, you know like you know like hey like you know if you're the guy who plays uh you know you play 2550 at the local casino you know, and you're, you're a reg in that game and I'm your friend and I play five ten, and I'll be like, you know, and if I go up to you and I say like, Hey, you know, like, am I good enough to play in that game? You're, you're going to tell me, you're going to tell me the truth. I hope. Right. Like you're going to tell me like, no, no, no. Like this lineup is, is brutal for you. Right. You're going to give me the commission, commission to my, my Mike McDermott. Right. Yeah. Like, um, but no, like my coach Rodrigo was just like, you have a heart, you, you have, you have lots of heart, Terrence, you fight. And I was like, if I remember correctly, heart was a major component to Captain Planet. And so, <laughs> like, it, 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 it's a strong attribute to have, Terrence. Don't undervalue the heart. I agree. But, you know, it's just, it wasn't what I was expecting. Uh, but I did it. And uh, I, I, I won that fight, too. Um, Through heart? And I, 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 I don't know. You can watch the fight and see how much heart was involved. <laughs> uh, I won it with an arm bar. So, I mean, I, 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 there's some. I don't know how much heart I put. I put a lot of heart into that armbar. Um, yeah. And I mean, you know, so once I, once I had won a pro fight, like, boy, like, you know, you thought, you thought it was, it was now what's really on. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's how it went. And I just, I, you know, as you start building a record, then promotion, promotions start becoming aware of you. They, they, they contact you like, Hey, do you want to fight? Hey, do you want to fight? And, uh, you know, most of the time I just said yes, because I, I did want to fight. I was, I was always in shape. And I, I also had this realization that like, you know, I'm in my thirties, I don't get to do this for forever. And even though I'm not going to be a world champion, like I do want to see as far as it goes, I should take as many fights as I can. And I, I did, I, I took, I think basically every fight that was offered to me, the only fight that I ever turned down was because I had actually, you know, I'd injured my ankle, then had a fight. And then the guy contacted me afterward. And I was like, no, I really need to, I fought this one on a bad ankle. Like I want to be ready for the the next one. And so I did end up fighting that guy, but I fought him like a year later. Um, and yeah, that's kind of how my MMA career went. I mean, I, 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 I won some and I lost some, but uh, every, every experience. Speaking of losing. Yeah. What was the first experience like losing an MMA fight? Um. I think because, I mean, it sucks, obviously, but I think because I'd never really had this expectation that I was so great, I don't think it, it didn't devastate me. Um, I did think I was going to win, but I didn't. And, and 
the thing is, I think the thing with, with training in mixed martial arts is that you are so often beat up in the gym by your training partners that you, you very, you very quickly realize like where in the pecking order you have, you are right. So there will be guys in the gym that it doesn't matter if it's his worst day and my best day. Like, I'm just not going to beat this guy, but that's okay. Like he's better than me. He's making me better. We're sparring partners. You know, we're not being locked, locked in a cage. He's not really going to kick my ass. Like he'll stop when I say, please stop. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, there, there, and there's just there's just so much less variance, right? And we we come from poker, which just has so much variance. Like you could you could play the absolute killer lineup, the 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 ten end bosses, and you could still win that that tournament or that table or whatever, um, because it's poker. Um, so it, it wasn't. I w- I would say I would even go as far as to say that if I went through my entire career undefeated, I would be a little disappointed because that would mean I never. I never challenged myself to a point where like somebody, you know, could beat me unless, unless it was like a fight that was just like five rounds of 25 minutes and I barely squeaked it out. Um, so I I'm really actually like quite grateful for the losses. Don't get me wrong. I'm still super salty about all of them. Like, like both of my, I, I mean, I have two pro losses and one amateur losses. I, I, the, the two pro losses are both stoppages that I thought could have went longer. Like I, I, you know, uh, especially the the second one, my last one, which is the retirement fight. Um, I, I very much like wanted to like get back. I got knocked down by a punch and the ref just kind of jumped in what I thought was too quickly. And uh, you know, I was immediately protesting and I was really upset about that one because I knew it was going to be my last fight. I, I told my girlfriend, we just had our kid, like this is the last one because, you know, I want to be there for my kid. Um I, I, so I was, I was really, really crushed about my second loss, probably more than my first loss. Um, because, because the first loss wasn't, it, I don't think it was an egregious stoppage. I think I could have gotten out of there, you know, give him a little more time and I, I would have gotten around three, but I mean, I was, I was unquestionably losing that fight. Um, the, the other one was like a five round fight and I just got knocked down on the first round and I thought that I didn't get a chance to recover. So I'm, I'm super salty about that. But like I said, like, I mean, that guy's in the UFC now, you know, like I'm, I've, I don't have anything to be ashamed of, of for that loss. Like I just, I wish I had more of an opportunity, but um, I am, I'm very much grateful that I challenged myself to that level. And I didn't just like cherry pick. I didn't bum hunt. Right. And poker pump hunting is probably good, you know, at least to a degree, because <laughs> that's, that's how you're going to get paid. Um, but if you're doing something just for the pure pursuit of it, then you don't want to bum hunt. You want to, you want to get as far as you think you can go. Yeah. If you want to find your limits, then you will inevitably fail. And if you never fail at something, if you never have setbacks, you're not seeking to find your limits. You're staying within, within your comfort zone. Um, what, uh, what lessons from poker did, did you carry with you that helped you in your MMA career? Yeah, I think it was, just you know being real analytical and and having the patience to study a lot you know to you know go over the not just not just the technical aspect of how to throw a punch how to do a sweep how to wrestle um but also like you know nutrition and sleep and sort of optimizing all of that stuff you see this now in poker and and the trend took hold late in poker, you know, with the, now everybody, you know, 
meditating and recognizing the value of, of eating well and getting a good night's sleep. That was not the case, obviously, 10 plus years ago in poker. Like poker was just this thing that you showed up to, you drank Gatorade at the table and smoked, right? Like, you know, like you just, you smoked and, you know, like, like the most successful players in the world were like all smokers and beer drinkers. Um, and now they're all, you know, now, now everybody just like meditates and eats grass fed beef um, all the time. Uh, I, I, I think those were the, those were the big things is just to take that approach because it was not common in MMA back then. And now it is starting to be like, you have these places like the UFC performance Institute that are teaching people, like, this is how you dehydrate for a weight cut. This is how you rehydrate. Like these, are, this is how you should um, approach your strength and conditioning, right? Like you, you MMA for most of its career up until or most of its life up until the last handful of years was train as hard as you can come back and do it tomorrow. It turns out that that's not the way to optimize growth. You need rest days. You need off days. And and taking a rest day or taking an easy day does not mean that you're a wimp. Um, it means that that's like the optimal way to to train. Because if you train hard on Monday, train hard on Tuesday, train hard on Wednesday, your performance will suffer on Thursday. You will not make these gains. Whereas if you take train hard on Monday, go a little lighter on Tuesday, and then train hard again on Wednesday your Wednesday performance will actually just be really good. And that's where you're actually going to, to grow and, and gain um, things. And, and it's something that I think sports scientists and other sports have known, but MMA being such a meathead sport for so long, didn't have that. And I, I just, you know, I, I just took that approach. I'm like, who can I learn from? Because I'll, I'll say this, we didn't talk about this a lot, but um, in poker, I, I think like the vast majority of my success is derivative from the fact derived from the fact that I just had people who were smarter than me. I was hanging around people who are better at poker than me and smarter than me all the time. And so when I got to MMA, I was like, the only way I can replicate the success is, is, is to, is, is to like seek those people out. And, you know, we talked early, you know, when you're, when you're first getting into poker, like, yeah, we have, you know, the Sklansky books and all that stuff. Um, but eventually like you, you do have to learn from other people. And I was very fortunate to learn from some of those people in poker and in MMA, I would seek those people out online and I would be like, this guy wrote a really interesting thing. I wonder if he would answer an email and just kind of go in there and say like, uh, you know, send me an email. And most of these time, most of the time, these guys are really approachable and, uh, you know, because, because it was a niche sport back then. So yeah, that was just sort of the attitude that I took towards it is just to like, just learn everything you can about this thing, uh, about this pursuit, because people are going at it in a very meatheady way. There's a lot of real analogs to poker in the time that I did it and MMA in the time that I did it, because poker, you know, in the, in the early days before again, proper studying was mostly people just putting in hours and, and kind of getting better. And there being sort of the survivorship bias of, okay, these guys haven't gone broke yet and they're, pretty good. They don't necessarily even know why they're any good. They've just put in a lot of hours. And in MMA is very much the same thing. Like these guys have just put in hours on the mat and, you know, in the boxing ring. Um, but there are better ways. There are, there are ways to learn, especially if you're somebody who is not coming at this from, you know, I, I don't have an athletic background. I'm just a guy who's taking this up in my thirties. Like I wasn't like a college wrestler and I wasn't like a, a martial artist since I was five years old. Yeah. You have to work smart and Part of, part of that is finding out people who have done all the things that have learned the lessons through all the hardships that you yeah. don't want to learn, right? You're just, you're gaining their wisdom. Um, and 
even today in poker, I think this is just a, a very pivotal thing that you need to do. You don't have to go about it on your own. There are people who have experienced and lived a life and gone through it that you can ask and that, you know, are typically more accessible than you might think. And one part of that, at least like in my case specifically, like when someone reaches out to you that is on the path that you were once on and they're seeking guidance or help, there's this, you just feel compelled to share what you learned with them because that, that's what you would have wanted, right? You see yourself in this person. Um, and that's just, uh, I think that's just human nature. or I don't know if it's every human's nature, but it's, it's my nature. And the reality is like that's got to be the same for most any other pursuit uh, in the world. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's almost like a, you know, a, a cliche that sometimes the, the, the older, you know, generation gives the unsolicited advice to the younger generation, but it, it's so much more, like you say, like when the, the younger generation or not necessarily younger, but, but, you know, less experienced reaches out to you, you're like, oh, this is like, this is, this is an opportunity to, to impact a life. Right. And that's not something you get every day, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a special thing when it, when it does happen. And, and like, it, it is very much like a pay it forward thing too, because I have, and I'm sure you had too, like these, these mentors who helped you through um, a large part of your life. And then there's, you know, you can, you can try to thank these people and you should be grateful for them that they were in your life. But, you know, to some extent, there's only so much you can do. There's not much you can do beyond that. The, the one thing you can do is to sort of pay it forward to the next generation of people who are kind of doing the things that you did. And then that's, I think, probably the best way to honor the people that have that helped you when, when you were in that spot. Yeah. Now you're going to get inundated with amateur mixed martial artists who are also poker players after this. Episode. Yeah. I mean, all, all, all three of them, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> Come on. There's at least five. Um. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, we haven't had an, an MMA poker, a high profile uh, MMA or kickboxing poker fight in a while. That was a, that was a thing that kept happening uh, 10 years ago. But yeah. I remember like seeing on Twitter, there's footage of like you battling Huxie to like the WSOP. That's right. That's right. That was really funny. Yeah. We had a, we had a wrestling mat on, uh, we were like, we we're like down to six tables and like the 1500 triple draw and we almost got kicked out of the casino. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was, it was just, I mean, that's just hilarious because Huck is, you know, I'm, I'm a five foot, 740 pound dude who's done jujitsu for a long time. Huck is like this mostly untrained dude, but he's like six, five. And everybody says he's like the best athlete that has ever, uh, that's ever, you know, that's ever graced the poker felt. And he, he is apparently, if you ask like Jason Kuhn about Huck seed, like <laughs> it's, it's amazing the stuff that he can do at like 48 years old or whatever he is. But yeah, we had a grappling match and then I, I was, I had him trapped in an arm bar and he tried to slam his way out of it. It's, it's just, <laughs> it's a hilarious video because it, uh, because the security guard breaks it up. So we never really reach a conclusion. Um, but it's, it's just perfect. To, it's a perfect thing because it shows off how like a smaller, more skilled guy is going to do well, but it also shows off how like just being kind of an athletic freak gets you out of, uh, out of some spots. It's kind of fun. Yeah, he he just dropped you on your head. <laughs> he, he did just, just like, drop me on my head, and, but it was it wasn't, you a, on your head. <laughs> wasn't a real hard surface, so it didn't bother me much. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't tell what the surface was in the video, or my memory can't recall it. <laughs> um, yeah, so man, this has been great, and believe it or not, you know, as I said at the beginning, the, that first question is quite a doozy. 
Um, so haven't gotten around to the lightning round questions, uh, okay. but well, let's, let's ask a couple of them. Uh, unfortunately I know I'm, I'm disappointing the CPG listener, but, uh, I have another podcast in five minutes. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll have to schedule a round two with, with Terrence Chan to get, get the rest of, you know, your poker journey. And then also sure. these, these questions, um, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about poker today, what would it be? Stalling. Um, of all of all varieties, um, like stalling on the bubble, as well as um, like this looking at your whole cards and balancing how long you need to do to to do this preflop thing. Probably just like pace of play. I could not agree with you more. And you've just like ignited something in me. Like I don't play tournaments. Yeah. And I can't uh, like, I think I played like one tournament in the last probably five years, one live tournament. And like, it's just the, uh, it, it gets to me. The, like, the thing is the, you might not play poker tournaments, but like the poker tournaments are, are so many people's gateway into poker that are sort of new and amateurish. And the experience of these people who just like stalled near the bubble or near a pay jump, or just because like they need to fucking balance their like, like look at like ah oh, like just it's it's you know you you you, you know, they're gonna defend the big blind and ace ace king like they need five seconds to check. <laughs> yeah, it, I I don't play tournaments because of stalling drives me absolutely insane. I just can't. It's like oh my god, like how are tournaments constructed in a way where stalling is like incentivized? Like stalling just makes you money in poker tournaments. Isn't there a better way to do this? Like yeah. Because stalling is incentivized, right? Like you do make money yep. by stalling, which is why people do it, right? So like basically you have to remove that incentive and I'm not exactly sure how and that, to get and that's that why done. And that's why your phrasing of waving a magic wand is, is like, uh, great. Like you, you have to, you would literally have to wave a magic wand and hypnotize people into not doing it. And then again, like all these pros who, who, who really feel like they have to be perfectly balanced in every situation. Like you've played Limit Hold'em. So I, you know, you, you realize like how incredibly annoying it is if a guy needs to like take 10 seconds to act on every action in a limit game, it's, well, that's, it's, it's different shock. incentives, you know, because like in cash games, you're incentivized to play faster because yeah. you get more hands per hour, which increases your hourly rate if you're a winning player. So it's like, it's just a different incentive and I'm sure there's a way to do it. And maybe some genius will think of it down the road, but like, Oh my God, that would just be the best thing ever to eliminate. It makes the stalling. experience just so bad. And I am a recreational player now. Like I'm the guy that, <laughs> you know, I, I, it's just, it's just such a terrible experience and it's just a terrible experience for people who are new to poker or people who are recreational players. Um, the only people who can tolerate this honestly are tournament pros. Yeah. Um, if you could put up a billboard, every poker player has got to drive past on their way to the casino. What's your billboard say? I mean, does it say, can it say stop stalling? I don't think I would sure, be very effective. Uh, I, the, the thing <laughs> is, is if I thought it would work. ourselves. <laughs> yeah, I was like, if, if I thought it would work, it might be that. Um, that, that that's tough. Um, but 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 another answer that isn't as bitchy um, as my other answer would, would be would be play more games. Um, because like I said, that's probably one of the regret for my career is that I didn't delve into playing more games. And, and everybody wants to, play no one hold them because that's what everybody plays and that's all the money but it doesn't have to be that way and and a lot of the other games are, are really fun so you should play lots of different poker games awesome and uh any project you're working on right now that's near and dear to your heart um not so much i mean i just uh i'm just i'm just trying to 
have a family and uh, be a family man. But uh, no, I, I enjoy I enjoy doing the podcast uh, with, with Daniel Adam. I enjoy you know doing things like this with people like you occasionally. Um, I do I do some UFC betting, um, some live UFC betting. And so, no, I, I keep myself occupied with, with fun things that I want to do, but I, I don't have any ongoing project at the moment. I wish I did. And uh, final question is if the CPG audience wants to learn more about you, where can they go? I mean, I don't know why you'd want to do that. <laughs> I am uh, at Teachan poker on Twitter. Uh, I have to work on getting my blog back online. Uh, it's, it was terrencechanpoker.com and it had, if you like the MMA stories, I have a lot of MMA stories up there and on there. Um, I just, I haven't been able to get it online. Maybe by the time you've released this, I will have gotten off my ass and, and done that. Uh, but yeah, you can, you can Google my name in YouTube and see some fight videos if you want. Um, but yeah, yeah you, also the podcast, you know, we can direct them, direct them there. Oh That's yeah. Okay. Dad poker podcast. Um, it's on Daniel Negrano's YouTube channel or just subscribe to Dad poker podcast, wherever you get this and other fine podcasts. Awesome, man. It's been great having you on. Well, let's schedule a round two in the very near future. We can get to some other questions besides your story. And also maybe we probably skipped over a bunch in your story as well. Uh, I think, I think you did a great job. It's been lots of fun. My pleasure, man. Take care. Have a, have a great rest of your day. All right, you too. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast. Podcast.